0: This is Forest Fireside Chats, a podcast produced by Elsa Soderstrom and hosted by Cora Martin, with special support from Emma Waters. Keep listening to gain a new outlook that we hope will expand, uplift, and brighten the movement towards U.S. sustainability. Welcome back to Forest Fireside Chats. I'm excited about today's episode. It's all about Alaska, and I know that Alaska has been a very hot-button issue recently because of the Willow project. I promised in the last episode that we'd talk a little bit about Willow just because of all the attention on social media the project is is, is getting. So I'm going to make good on that promise, and we are going to dive into... All of the debate surrounding this new drilling project in Alaska. So the Willow Project is a, as I said, a huge new drilling project in the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska. And this is federal land north of the Arctic Circle. The Willow Project is estimated to produce 575 million barrels of oil in the course of the next 30 years. And that will result... In about 10 million tons of carbon dioxide per year emitted into the atmosphere, or 300 million tons over the life cycle of the project. And this is pretty problematic because it not only contributes to global warming of the planet, it it contributes to warming in the Arctic, which is the fastest warming region on Earth. And to deal with that problem, the company that is implementing the Willow Project, ConocoPhillips, has promised to install chillers to keep the permafrost frozen under all of the equipment. I, I don't know too much about that technology, but it seems very suspect. Let's talk first about some of the reasons why President Biden may have chosen to approve this project. According to Politico, choosing to approve new drilling as part of the Willow Project was a strategy to demonstrate Biden's willingness to work on both sides of the aisle. It's his Biden moves to the center narrative. And this is, I guess, a strategy to help him win reelection next year. And, you know, the Willow Project won't actually produce any oil in the next few years, but it's been called a way to bring down oil and gas prices. You know, some analysts have agreed that this strategy may help to win over moderates and in independents, especially with elevated gas prices amid the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But, you know, the administration defended its decision in a completely different way. It argued that giving Kinoko Phillips the green light to begin drilling was a legal necessity. We've been denying the leases that Kinoko Phillips has in the National Petroleum Reserve for decades and would have resulted in a courtroom battle and that would cost the government as much as five billion dollars according to the administration. So what the White House did instead was that it agreed to grant the leases but it shrunk the project to around 40 percent of what it could have been and this was the best option open to the White House. To kind of soften the blow of this Announcement The administration also announced that it would stop offering new oil leases in the U.S. waters of the Arctic Ocean and it would remove 13 million acres from the National Petroleum Reserve for future leasing consideration. There's more, the list goes on. Like the administration also announced that it would place new protections on a coastal wetland called the Teshapuk Lake, and this would essentially create like a firewall that prevents willow from expanding. Biden administration also intends to to dedicate 2.8 million acres of the Beaufort Sea in the Arctic Ocean off limits for future oil and gas leasing. Like there's just so many examples of this kind of attempt to soften the blow of willow. But as we've seen in social media, we're not really seeing a lot of these good things. We're really only focused on this kind of betrayal by the administration to approve new oil drilling, which is catastrophic for climate change. I can't emphasize that enough. Okay, so that's a good segue into talking about why this really is such an issue. When the president took office way back in January 2021, he almost immediately signed a moratorium on new oil and gas drilling leases in federal lands and federal waters. So this is this is a betrayal of that first executive order that President Biden issued. And then, you know, regarding this kind of theory that Biden can win re-election through this strategy, some analysts argue that this is short-sighted. The level to which Willow has has been trending on TikTok and other social media uh, can't be understated, and it certainly will lose support of young people who originally voted for Biden in 2020. So. If this really is like about politics, it was it was definitely a risky move because people are not happy, especially young people. Finally, regarding the kind of legal dimension of this issue, some environmental groups are arguing that the administration had the legal authority to deny Canoco Phillips a permit because of a federal environmental review that found substantial concerns about the project's impact on the climate as well as, like, the danger it poses to freshwater, the way it threatens birds, animals like caribou and whales and all of, like, the native species that inhabit the region. But I know that if the administration had done that, it certainly would have led to a courtroom battle, and I think that's what the White House was really trying to avoid, even if these environmental groups are correct in believing the government could have been in the right because of this detrimental effect on the climate and the natural environment. Okay, so that pretty much sums it up. Now we're gonna jump into the interview, which is a pretty exciting story about a multi-year battle to shut down mining in Alaska's Bristol Bay. I'm not gonna spoil what happens, but I will say it's a happy ending. So let's just jump right in. You'll get to meet our interviewee, Sean Brown, who was truly a force behind this movement. We were so lucky to get to speak with him, and I thank him so much for sharing his story. It was truly amazing to hear. And I also, of course, want to just thank him for his service to the country and the planet. I can't imagine what it took to achieve this win and... All of us future generations are gonna benefit from his work and his service. Okay, let's let's get into it. I really hope you all enjoy the episode and thank you so much for listening. Okay, Sean, thank you so much for being here. So Sean Brown earned two bachelor's degrees in conservation biology and environmental policy at Evergreen State College. And then he studied at the University of Montana as a Doris Duke Conservation Fellow where he earned a master's degree in environmental policy and natural resource conflict resolution. He is now the vice president of public affairs for the Conservation Alliance. Throughout his studies and his career, Shorn has a long history of coalition building with environmental interest groups, including commercial fishermen, native organizations and tribes, business leaders and political leaders from both sides of the aisle. He has raised millions of dollars from individuals and foundations for conservation causes from Alaska to Maine. Way back in spring 2009, Shoren Brown and his colleague Tim Bristol flew to D.C. to meet with the Environmental Protection Agency about Alaska's pebble mine project in a corner of the Bristol Bay watershed. Bristol Bay is a vast and pristine swath of southwest Alaska that sustains the greatest sockeye salmon runs on the planet, an industry critically important to Alaskans. At the time, no one knew much about the mine, and for the past 14 years, Brown worked with different interest groups and public servants, traveled countless times to D.C., held hundreds of coalition meetings, and spent thousands of hours at grassroots events and activations. The EPA finally blocked the development of the Alaska Pebble Mine on January 30th, 2023. I proudly congratulate him on this win and am extremely honored to have him here on the Forest Fireside Chats podcast. It's 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 making me emotional just saying this. I, I, this is such a beautiful story. I, I can't believe that this has happened. I'm so excited to hear from you. But I first want to ask, many people in your line of work had some kind of fundamental experience appreciating the beauty of nature. And I'm wondering, did you grow up with that same appreciation? How, and how, if not, how did you get inspired to get into conservation work?
1: Yeah, good question. Thanks for having me. And I get emotional still too, just hearing you talk about it is, uh, it's wild to work on something for, you know, a a huge portion of your life and actually win one. I feel like the saying is, when we win, it's temporary. And when the other side wins, it's, it's permanent. So it's nice to, it's nice to win one. Yeah, I grew up out in the woods in Louisiana, which is a pretty uncommon story. I feel like most of the people who grew up in rural Louisiana never leave. But I we we yeah you know, I eventually left. But I had an incredible childhood for my first fifteen years running around the woods with my brother and sister, and I just have these incredible memories from being a kid of you know swimming in a river with snakes and alligators and just crazy wildlife around us all the time, and we were allowed to just you know it was it was the opposite of the of the helicopter parent in the in the late 70s and and 80s in Louisiana we were just gonna wake up get our schoolwork done do what needed to be done around the house and then spend six or eight hours a day just running wild in the woods chopping down trees and setting anthills on fire little hippie redneck kids and it just shaped you know I think those those first you know as you as you were kind of saying like those first experiences just shaped who I was I mean I think later went you know got into backpacking and and ended up studying an outdoor rec for a little while and then conservation in college and yeah i think those those initial childhood experiences grew into me having a life where my deepest relationships with people are usually people i've spent time with deep in the wilderness on fishing trips or backpacking trips i just you know wild places whether it was the end of the dirt road i grew up on in louisiana or you know, flying over a vast unroaded wilderness in Bristol Bay. is like, those places have always just made the most sense to me. And so having my job be focused on protecting them has kind of been a no-brainer. I won't say it doesn't feel like work. I don't subscribe to that. Like, find your passion and then your work is your passion. I think it's it's tough as hell out there, but it but it feels good at the end of the day to do something that I feel so connected to.
0: Yeah, and tell me so. How did you kind of hone in on Alaska? When did that happen, and when did you decide that this was a place you wanted to really invest a lot of your career in?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I feel like a lot of people. Would, I don't know that it was like a. I woke up one day and said Alaska is going to be my thing. It just kind of seeped into the cracks. I I was an undergrad. The real story is I was an undergrad at Evergreen, and my advisor. This guy, Ted Whitesell, had set up a conservation organization in Southeast Alaska early in his career, and he was still connected with them, and he got me, he helped give me my first job, and I moved to Juneau. This was like end of the 90s, and I was a grassroots organizer, so I was like this long-haired kid from a very progressive school, moved to Juneau. And ended up walking the commercial fishing docks and talking to tribes and sportsmen and all these people who, you know, wouldn't have been in my seminar on public lands management and undergrad. And had they been, they would have probably told us we were all full of shit. But had to connect with them and and understand their perspective and see the world through their eyes. And I think that's really what made me fall in love with Alaska more than anything is just the people and their connection to the landscape and how raw and real it was. It wasn't some philosophical, like, I love beautiful places. It was like, I catch these fish, these fish feed my family and feed people across the world. And if we log these watersheds and ruin the rivers that these fish depend on, all that goes away. And that was such a more compelling uh, I felt that in my heart in a way that I think traditional sort of conservation campaigns and and language around like wild places didn't speak to me as much. You know, I was there and then I ended up moving to D.C. later on and being a guy who had actually spent time walking the docks in Alaska, which is a short list of people who've done the D.C. thing and can hang with the commercial fishing crowd. So I just kind of kept... Finding my way back to Alaska.
0: Okay, thank you. Great, yeah, so let's let's talk about D.C. Can you take us back to that first trip that I mentioned in spring 2009? What was your expectation when you were bringing this issue of the Pebble Mine to people in D.C.? And how did the entire experience with the Obama-era administration turn out?
1: Yeah, good question. Yeah, I mean... I think a lot like any conservation campaign in its early days, the Pebble effort was really trying to decide how they wanted to go about, you know, what the strategy was going to be to try and stop the mine. And up to that point, it had been really focused on state strategy. So pass a bill through the state legislature, try and convince Alaska Department of DNR to deny the permits. I think. People and I think this is fairly common across conservation campaigns. Like you, you choose a strategy, you exhaust it. You, you know, you try all the all the uh, options that you have. And I think when I came into the Pebble campaign, we had really exhausted most of the state-based levers. It was always going to be people from Alaska were always going to be first in that campaign. But but the the actual policies that could stop the mine, I think the state the state level ones have been exhausted. So. We, you know, long story, but we figured out that the, that the 404C gave EPA jurisdiction over the waters in Bristol Bay. And so we started, you know, we started from absolute scratch, just talking to folks in the administration, folks at the EPA and telling the story about Bristol Bay and how amazing it was and the resources that were there and what a, what a catastrophic loss it would be if, if we built a mine and and uh and lost the salmon the salmon-based cultures the commercial fishing industry and, and everything else so yeah that first trip was no one really had heard about Bristol Bay because on it was on state lands so there what there hadn't been a strong federal angle to it at all and it was hard. I mean we started from scratch right we were talking to Super junior folks at EPA, super junior folks in Senate and House offices. And we just kept going, you know, and and we put local people in the in the driver's seat. and I, I mean, i I think the other way to say that is we stepped back as white conservation leaders and said, "You know what? this is your place. We're here to advise and help create opportunities, but it's going to be up to you guys to tell the story and and people did i mean it was an incredible 14-year campaign of you know bringing tribal folks from from bristol bay back to dc some would never left bristol bay you know wow. that's a it's just a, it w- I just feel honored to have been a part of it honestly but yeah we followed like hell for a long time and and grew it from no one knowing about it to now everybody selling and celebrating it and being, you know, taking credit for it and all the good things that human beings do when there's a win. And it it feels good. I think we made smart decisions over the years that that added up to including a lot of people in in what turned into a national effort.
0: I I can't really imagine the level of thought and long-term vision and sacrifice and motivation that it probably took to do this. Could you maybe tell us how you and your colleagues and the tribal folks sustained their motivation to continue working on this movement over the years and kind of just like walk us through, like were there lows, were there highs, or was it just kind of just a waiting game?
1: Yeah. No waiting game. I feel like we were sprinting for fourteen years. I, you know, there's always something going on, whether it's trying to you know when you're engaged in a in a campaign like this, you you sort of you you're constantly making your best case to the agency and the and the White House and you know elected officials on the hill. and they're constantly sort of giving you feedback about what they need to feel comfortable and you know where they feel like the missing pieces are. so. It's a, you know, there's, there's just a lot of work that goes into that, frankly, and and where there lows, I mean, there were months, years, the Trump administration was especially rough, for obvious reasons, you know, we, we fought like how all through the Obama years, and we were incredibly close to having the 404C, which is the section of the Clean Water Act that we use to stop the mine done and then the mining company filed a really junk lawsuit at the end of the Obama years that prevented them from getting it over to from completing it. And so we went into the Trump administration having just been so close to a real win and the first thing the Trump folks did is is throw it all out. And so yeah, there were there were lows and I think you know I think a couple things It's incredibly important to have, I started out of family during the campaign that I was incredibly unhealthy with it at times where like, if, if we were doing well in the campaign, I was a happy human being. And if we were not, I was not, and that's not a good way to be sounds obvious, but can be incredibly difficult to manage yourself when you're fighting one of these fights, because if you really believe that you're on the side of good and and you can feel the win and you have a roadmap that you believe in to get to the win, it's hard not to spend way too many hours of your day trying to move the ball forward. Um, so I think for me personally, it was about finding other other things to do with my time that were meaningful. And then. Man, just building a building a campaign team where you, it's like it becomes a family. Dysfunctional at times, like, you know, we had some shitty Thanksgivings <laughs> as a family. There's no doubt. But at the end of the day, we always pulled together and we we weren't afraid to have really difficult conversations. It's pretty much the same group of 12 or 14 people that oversaw the win this year that started this thing. And so just you know, like you said in the intro, hundreds of hours of conversations and being with each other through tough times. And I think that is, of anything we did, that's one of the things I'm most proud of is just helping to keep that group together and keep us moving forward. And there were times where we didn't think we were going to win. Yeah. There were times where the the headwinds were so strong that people were like, I'm going to go work on something else, or I'm going to, yeah, you know, I don't think, I don't think we can do this. And we all showed up for each other and cheered each other on. And I think it, you know, keeping that core group together ended up playing such a huge role in how we got it done. Like had that, had that team broken apart at any point, I think it would have been really hard to, to get it done. So.
0: Wow. I, I just, I thank you and everyone who worked on it for continuing and fighting through the lows and, Oh my gosh, it's just such a wonderful thing to hear that this all had a happy ending. Yeah. I think um, The
1: other thing I'll say there is that, I, you know, I think I think it's really easy to think about social change, especially on the environment. It's like, we build a campaign, we know we're right. You know, I think that's a downfall of the left frequently. And I include myself in that, you know, in that group, obviously. We know we're right, we're all these campaigns and then we expect action, we expect the win. On a really short timeline, I think one of the big lessons from the Bristol Bay effort is like these things take time. And if you're in it for a quick win, you're in the wrong field, unless you just get wildly lucky. Like I know those campaigns exist where they roll it out and two years later they have a win. You know, I don't, th- I think that's the exception, not the rule. And you gotta be willing to do the people management side of it as much as everything else.
0: You mentioned the Trump administration a little bit earlier and how that was a big setback in your movement. Did you keep your movement nonpartisan? Do you try to work with politicians on both sides of the aisle in this? And, and did you find any success in that?
1: Yeah, no, I think that was one of the central tenets of the strategy from day one. I mean, I think a number one central tenet was this: this campaign has got to be led by local people, period. I think the second... If, if there's a hierarchy of of sort of the way we approach things, the second tenet was we're going to talk to everybody and we're not going to run this thing in a way that excludes groups of people because we knew from day one we needed everybody that we could get in order to win. And and that's tricky, right, because it means you ended up, you're working with people who, you know, I worked with a lot of people who I didn't agree with on anything other than our shared opposition to the pebble mine. And I think had we not run the campaign in that way, we would have lost. I'm 100% convinced of it because we needed people like Lisa Murkowski on board. You know, the, the part of the Trump story I didn't share earlier is the Trump administration killed the EPA work, but they ended up using their Army Corps of Engineers to slow the project down at the end of the Trump administration. And we did that by working with people who are, you know, pretty disgusting, frankly, like Tucker Carlson, for instance, who fishes out in Bristol Bay and I think genuinely cares about that area. And I consider to be, you know, someone who's actively engaged in stirring up social unrest in this country in a way that is terrible for the country. i I, you know, so, I don't think we would have gotten to the win had we not been willing to work with folks from both sides of the aisle. I think both sides of the aisle meant a different thing after 15 years than it meant at the beginning. Right At the beginning, it was like there were still moderate Republicans in the House and Senate. Um, There were a lot of lodge owners and, and folks on the sportsman side who, you know, they were Republicans, but they were not they were not like January 6th Republicans. They were fiscally conservative, socially conservative, and cared about the environment, which I think was a way easier place for me to engage just as a human. So I think, you know, bipartisan work is changing a lot. Like the the left keeps getting farther to the left, and the right keeps getting farther to the right. And I, I think it's really hard and, and incredibly critical work. And I, I do think land and water conservation is one of those fun issues that, like, brings people together. And if you can look past your your own worldview long enough to understand that at some point you're going to need somebody who doesn't look, act, and think like you to be on your team if you want to win, I think you can achieve incredible results. And I think the conservation movement writ large is, you know, forgets that way too often in my Experience.
0: Yeah, I've always I'm glad to hear that because I've always kind of hoped and thought that this kind of work really is the middle ground that we can we can bridge yeah. the two parties, um, and that's one part of this that's really exciting to me. So yeah, I want to mention I I know you've probably seen that the Willow Project, Kenoko Phillips Willow Project, has gained a wow. lot of attention and on, on social media. People are pretty outraged by it. Yeah. There have been some wins in Alaska, like the Pebble Mine and Uh, A wildlife refuge was recently protected from a a road being built through it. So there's been some wins, but this is just this loss has been has taken social media by storm. So I want to ask, in your perspective, do you feel like this decision to drill for new oil in Alaska kind of dims your win in these other um, good environmental things that are happening in Alaska? Does it kind of color this recent shutdown of the Pebble Mine?
1: Yeah. that's an interesting thing to think about i hadn't thought about it in the in that perspective i i don't know what to say about Willow. we can start just with willow in general i don't know what to say about willow i think you know big you know grown-up conservation is tough going the 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 fact is is we live in a country that the vast majority of voters say they care about conservation and climate, but they don't necessarily vote that way. So we have a Congress and we have, you know, one of the political parties that tends to you know, we have a divided Congress almost always. The, the Republican Party, I think there are champions for conservation in that party, but I think they end up having to pander to their base a lot. And by base, I mean big companies who want to drill mine and log. And so I think when you I think it's complicated when you get into the real mechanics of how you get work done in the in a in a White House and in Congress in DC, and the number of people you have to sort of bring along to get to a win and the sacrifices you have to make along the way. For me, Willow is not worth. You know, if there was a trade and I have no idea if there was, I wasn't part of those discussions. If, if there were conversations, if there was a trade, I, you know, I think it's, that's a tough trade. That's a lot of carbon going into the atmosphere. And I don't think we're at a place right now where we should be having to trade Willow for Eisenbach, Pebble, you know, whatever it is. I also think we live in a complicated world and it's uh. Listen I wish I wish the electorate was more evolved I wish members of Congress and decision makers were more evolved and I wish there were more people who um came to the ballot box with their conservation agenda top of mind but that's not the reality of the world we live in and, and the reality is conservation ends up requiring compromise and that was sort of my take on it. again I I wasn't super involved in Willow so I don't know the real behind-the-scenes story, but I hope that people see it uh, for what it is, uh, a, call, a renewed call for action within the conservation community that even in the Biden administration, with a, a lot of great people in the agencies with, I think, great ideas and values, bad things are still happening, and they're not going to stop happening until we build a movement that is inclusive enough and has the right bipartisan engagement and and has the right sort of groundswell behind it that we control the politics more than we currently do. And that's sort of my takeaway.
0: Great. Okay, well, just again, thank you so, so much. I'm sure people are gonna love to hear this. It's just such a, it's a needed thing to happen in this environmental movement. So thank you so much.
1: It was awesome to be here. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Let's start talking about the news from the month of April, 2023. This piece of news is not super big, but it's interesting. New York has decided to ban natural gas in new buildings, including stoves. I know that was a big news story recently about the federal government considering forcing you to get rid of your gas stove. It looks like New York isn't going to make you get rid of your gas stove, but there will be only electric in the future. Another exciting thing in New York is the announcement of a new 700 million dollar climate campus and this campus will be built on Governor's Island only accessible via ferry which will run every 15 minutes between the city and Governor's Island. Stony Brook University is leading the charge to transform this big chunk of land into a 400,000 square foot hub called the New York climate exchange. This hub will focus on researching climate solutions and training for green jobs. All of this is expected to open in 2028. It will kind of be this living lab that will include two newly constructed classroom and research buildings and make use of some of the historic buildings on the island the existing public amenities of governor's island will stay the same so that will be that would be pretty cool to witness so this is huge news the epa has proposed its first controls on greenhouse gases from power plants the proposed rule that the biden administration is working on will compel power plants to capture pollution from smokestacks and this kind of technology is only used by 10 of the 3,400 coal and gas-fired plants. The implementation of these controls could potentially expand that technology, and it would be like the first example of restrictions on carbon dioxide emissions from existing power plants, which, as some of you may know, accounts for 25% of the United States' global emissions of greenhouse gases. People familiar with the rule noted to the New York Times that Coal and gas fired power plants would have to cut or capture nearly all of their carbon dioxide emissions by 2040. And, you know, this is this is major and it's expected to kind of experience a lot of opposition from the fossil fuel industry. Especially like legal battles by Republican attorneys and conservative lobbying groups. This regulation proposed by the EPA is being reviewed by the White House Office of Management and Budget, and it could still change. But, you know, a spokeswoman of the EPA said the agency is, quote, moving urgently to advance standards that protect people and the planet, building momentum from President Biden's investing in America economic agenda, including proposals to address carbon emissions from new and existing power plants. So this is very much in line with the Biden administration's greater agenda. A few more technicalities because this really is just such a big issue is that the rule would not mandate the use of carbon capture equipment, but by setting this cap on pollution, the plant operators would have to invest in different technology or switching to a different fuel source like green hydrogen, uh, which doesn't emit carbon. Hopefully this goes through and and I'll, and I'll be updating you, of course, on any developments. The Biden administration announced that it would be opening a White House Office of Environmental Justice. One of several actions the administration has taken to address the unequal burden that people of color in the United States experience from environmental hazards, climate change. In a press conference in the Rose Garden, Biden quoted, Every federal agency must take into account environmental and health impacts on communities and work to prevent those negative impacts. Environmental justice will be the mission of the entire government. This last story has to do with cutting water allotments from the Colorado River. Uh, And this mostly applies to California, Arizona, and Nevada. As we've talked about on this podcast again and again, there's been negotiations between states to cut water usage, but states haven't really devoted as much as they need to to save the Colorado. So the Biden administration proposed evenly cutting water allotments, uh, reducing the water to California, Arizona, and Nevada by about one quarter what they've previously received. This is the first time in history that... The federal government has even attempted to unilaterally impose water cuts on states. But you know, this is a major crisis and if nothing is to be done, the Colorado River risks a complete dryout. The Interior Department published a draft analysis that considered three options. The first action is to take no action and that is the path that really risks the long-term viability of the Colorado River and the long-term viability of water security in the United States. So that that option could really be detrimental to U.S. national security. The other option is to base reductions on the most senior water rights, so the oldest water rights in Arizona, California, and Nevada. And this would definitely give California a leg up on the other two states, California would not have to change much of its modern day water intake as it is the largest and the oldest user of the Colorado River. But Nevada and Arizona would have to severely cut their water intake. And that would certainly harm them and could have disastrous impacts on safety and security in those two states. The third option is to evenly cut water across Arizona, California, and Nevada by beyond 13% what they've already agreed to cut. So there hasn't really been a decision regarding this choice, but the proposal is out there now, and eventually the Interior Department and the federal government will have to choose what to do next to save the Colorado River. so for the sustainability tip for this month i wanted to do kind of a summer themed tip as it is getting hotter and brighter out when you're trying to keep your house cool this summer the best thing you can do for the environment is try to use the natural environment as best you can to heat and cool your house a couple summers ago i lived with someone who did try to live a very sustainable lifestyle and she would Wake up early in the morning and open all of her windows to give her house kind of a natural cool and try to stay away from the thermostat as much as possible. As it is getting brighter out, you can definitely use natural light instead of electricity to light up your house. All of these things have really positive impacts on your overall electricity usage and thus your overall greenhouse gas emissions. And it doesn't do bad things for your electricity bill as well, which is always helpful and definitely something I am going to keep in mind to the summer. That is all I have for you for this month. I really enjoyed doing this episode, and I really hope all of you enjoyed it as well and learned something. I definitely learned a lot about Alaska and conservation. Thank you again to our interviewee, Shorin Brown, for coming on and being such a gracious guest let me know how you liked the episode and yeah give me a message or give me a call I'd love to hear how you all are liking the podcast and what you hope to see in the future okay I really hope you all have a great month of May talk to you in one month